Hey everyone! Welcome to the State of the Universe and to 2019. This might be the first podcast you listen to in 2019, dropping on the first day of the month. I'm starting this year off right, except, except, listen to how stupid I am, okay? I've been sitting here about a half hour trying to get this going, trying to get this, you know, so part of it's me building up the motivation to actually speak words, okay? Because sometimes I don't want to speak words. I just want to sit like a potato or a vegetable and I just want to rest on a couch and not do anything, okay? But sometimes I have to speak words and I need to get the motivation to do so. And I'm sitting here and I can't get my damn microphone to pick up my words, my voice in a reliable way so that it can actually be heard by you people. You want to know why? Because my microphone is turned the wrong way. How about that? How about that? Oh, Brendan, how long have you been doing this? Oh, just a couple months. Oh, okay. So then you probably should know that you have to face the microphone towards you. Okay? And then, if you want to make it even funnier, when I recorded my last podcast, I went back and watched the video portion of that, and I realized, guess what, dummy? The microphone was turned the wrong damn way for the whole episode. But it's okay. It didn't really affect the audio. It just made me have to talk much louder. I wondered why I had to scream in that episode. It doesn't sound like screaming when you watch it. You won't even notice. If I didn't tell you, you probably wouldn't notice. Other than it might sound a little echoey because the sound waves coming out of my mouth are not the sound waves being received by the microphone in the episode. It's instead the ones that bounce off of the walls in the studio and then go back in. But it doesn't matter. You're still going to hear it. You're still going to love it. And you wouldn't have noticed. I just wanted to tell you how stupid I am. But guess what? New year, new me. You know? New year, new me. That's how you correct every mistake in your life. You wait until New Year's, and then you go, uh, New Year, new me, you know? And so New Year, new me right now. New Year, new me. That's what I have to say. But welcome to the show. This episode features Aisha Akhtar, and I practice that a lot. Dr. Aisha Akhtar. She is a double board certified neurologist and preventative medicine and public health specialist. She is an expert when it comes to the way in which we treat animals and how that has an effect on public health. And she's in the process of writing a book right now that will be released in May. You could go pre-order it. It's called Our Symphony with Animals on Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Destinies. And she talks to us about some of the topics in the book. We talk about things like factory farming. We discuss factory farming's impact on human health, the spread of viral infections, and the impact that factory farming and agriculture in general can have on climate because that's something that isn't necessarily talked about a lot. We tend to look at transportation as the thing that really affects climate, but the truth is that agriculture and factory farming have a huge impact on it as well. Now, I do have to say that Aisha works for the federal government. You know what that means? That means I have to give you a disclaimer. The disclaimer is that her opinions do not represent the opinions of the federal government. They represent her opinions only. It's so silly that we live in a climate where we feel we need to do that. But I understand. I understand why she would want that to be said, and I try to say that too. 
my opinions don't represent the people that employ me or whatever. But man, isn't that kind of a dumb thing that we have to do? I think that's really stupid. Maybe I'll stop doing it. I'll do that for my guests from now on out of respect. But as it pertains to me, I'm just not. I'm going to say really dumb stuff and you're going to misinterpret it. And guess what? Don't care. You want to know why? New year to me. So go support the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the state of the universe. Go donate a few dollars. Just do it. All the links that we talk about throughout this episode are down below in the description. I hope you enjoy. And all jokes aside, I am seriously grateful to all of you for making 2018 the best year of my creative life in terms of being able to create a product and having many, many people enjoy it and reach out to me in very touching ways. Some of you I am incredibly grateful for, my Patreons. Uh, We got Rich, we got Brenda, the two top donators of the month last month. We don't have many Patreon supporters, but what we do have is many, many listeners. And this is always going to be free. I'm never going to ask you explicitly for money. I'm never going to charge you explicitly to listen, okay? Because that's not the type of product I'm looking to make here. I don't want you to all feel like you have to pay for content. This is free, and this will remain free. And as long as you keep coming and listening, I'll continue getting these ideas out there, talking to the experts, and sharing it with you. And I intend to do that for 2019, for 2020, for 2021, for 2022, and on and on and on and on. And I appreciate you all, and I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your holiday, and I hope that you enjoy the new year. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from Christmas, from Hanukkah, from any other holiday you celebrated. I don't even know. I think I'm American and I'm ignorant because I I literally only know Christmas. So I just say happy holidays these days because I don't want to not include anyone when I say that. But welcome back. This is the first show of 2019 dropping on the new year. And I appreciate you being here. We have Aisha. Aisha, I thought about getting you on the show. I was watching a, a a comic. I love stand up comedy. And I was watching a comic by the name of Bill Burr, and he was talking about Coco the Gorilla. Are you familiar with Coco the Gorilla? Yep, I am. Okay, so then I looked into Coco the Gorilla, and I watched this like short documentary, like 10 minutes long. And they've taught this gorilla sign language, if you want to call it that. Um, not necessarily American sign language, but just, you know, sort of like, here's a word, here's the movement I want you to do to represent that word. And... This gorilla could like learned uh, hundreds of signs, and eventually they were showing it a book of of kittens, like a book of kittens, and it picked one out and it wanted a cat. It seemed to have wanted a kitten, so they brought it a kitten, and it loved this kitten, and they played together, and they, you know, had like a connection. This gorilla and the kitten had a connection, and you could see a visible connection. They they seemed to really enjoy being around one another. Just the same way a human would like to be around a cat. And this cat ended up escaping its cage and getting run over by a car. So then they had to tell Coco the gorilla that the cat had died. And the gorilla had very, very apparent visceral reaction to this. It understood that the cat wasn't going to be around anymore. 
And then later on in the night, they could hear it weeping like a human being in its cage at night. And it made me sort of think about animals in a way that I guess I hadn't thought about them ever before. I've always thought about gorillas and monkeys and, and primates as having some semblance of consciousness in the way that we t typically think about it. But it really made me sort of step back and think about animals as a whole as having consciousness comparable to human beings. Uh, and it made me want to get you on the show. And then I was watching, do you watch Planet Earth too? I've never watched that show. Oh my is that, God. Wait, is that a show or is that a station? Yeah, it's a show. It's a show <laughs> and it's made by BBC and it's incredible. I love oh, it. Is that on Netflix right now? Yes, I think so. Yeah. 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 And so I was watching that like the, the next day. And then in Alaska, there's these sperm whales that can hear miles away. They can hear a boat lowering down its cage to catch fish. And all of these sperm whales will, like, storm the bay. And before the fishermen can get the cage back up, the sperm whales eat all of the fish out of the cage. And they have developed this, like, keen sense of understanding when we're going to fish so that they can take advantage of that. And they do it cooperatively. And these two things together, I was like, wow, I gotta get someone on the show who writes about this, who understands the connection that... Animals have with one another, and animals have with humans. And so I got you, and I thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I, uh, you know, for your uh, holiday celebrations, I would add one one to the list that you didn't mention, which is Festivus. Festivus? I, Festivus. I, I don't even know what that is. Oh, no, that's a shame. That's you, a real shame. Can you, you educate to, me? You have to watch Seinfeld. Mm. See, maybe I'm too young for that. Maybe that's why I passed me by. Does that date me then? <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. I don't want to call you old, but... No, it's a timeless show, let me tell you. Yeah, but... So, I'll add that to the list. Festivus, I got it. I'm learning all new words today. But when I watched this, it, like, really boggled my mind. It made me think differently. If this gorilla can sense the fact that its friend has died and weep over that, then it has to undoubtedly know that it's trapped inside of a cage. And if it knows it's trapped inside of a cage, then other animals probably have that keen sense too. Yeah, why would we, you know, when you think about it, why would we think that only humans possess these capabilities? It's it, ignorance, really, I think. Well, I think it's, it's partly that, but I think there's a, a part of, uh, we want to elevate ourselves. As a species, we really work hard to elevate ourselves and to separate ourselves from other animals. And yes, of course, we're different from other animals in many ways, but each species is different from another species in its own way. And, um, you know, it's, 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 I, I think that we, there's a sort of human arrogance associated with the idea that we're the only ones capable of experiencing pain, of suffering, of getting excited, of feeling joy getting lonely, you know, grieving when someone we love dies. You know, these are these are all emotions that run the gamut in other species. You know, and so I, I'm a neurologist, and one of the things that I can tell you is that we all share, we humans with other, other species, other mammals and non-mammals, we share the same basic neurological wiring. 
And so you think about it, nature is very thrifty. It's not going to reinvent the wheel each time. It's going to use the same tools. So it's used the same tools for our neurological wiring. And we humans experience these emotions. They are part of what helps us survive. They are part of empathy, for example, for another is what helps us survive as a species, as a family, and so on. Um, Grieving is what helps us want to prevent that grieving process in the first place. Thus, you know, like wanting us to uh, prevent the illness and death of another person, um, someone we love. Why And uh, fear and loneliness is what, you know, fear is what keeps us um, from doing reckless activities, for example, that would, re- uh, that would risk our lives. Um, and loneliness, the same thing, is what keeps us together as, as you know, family units, as villages, as, and, and societies, and so on. These things, these emotions run in other animals as well for the same reason they run in us. They are what helps us survive. And it's, 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 it's really, uh, it's not just arrogance, or I'm sorry, ignorance, but arrogance that gets us to think that we are the only ones that have these emotions. So yes, we do very much share these emotions with a lot of other species. And now that it's no longer taboo to um, ascribe these emotions to other animals, now animal behaviorists and scientists are finally admitting, yeah, gosh, these other animals do have these capabilities. To what degree do you think the internet helped, maybe not helped, but catalyzed that thought throughout po- the population? That I think, I actually think it helped a great deal. I think, um, so now you see videos of, you know, there's so many videos of cat, cats, right? Of cats were, in, in the U.S. especially, people kind of, there's still a little bit of it, but people kind of made fun of cats. They're, you know, cat people are weird, for example. We're, we're a dog-loving culture. But cat videos have started to slowly change that. Um, people are seeing videos of little rats taking baths and, you know, um, and, and, and rats being tickled and laughing. Mm-hmm. Is, their, their sound is recorded um, ultrasonically. And or their their sounds are ultrasonic. So um, you know we're we're seeing videos of of these animals showing these emotions that 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 we connect that helps the reader or helps the audience directly connect with these animals. We're seeing them in their own light. And I think that these videos, for example, have been tremendous in getting people to rethink their views on animals. Yeah, it's I would love to see like some traffic data about Facebook how much web traffic on Facebook is spent watching animal videos. Because it's got to be a ton. Yeah. Even I do. I'm, I'm allergic to cats and most dogs. I can't really be around them. I can't really be in the house with them. So I don't have any pets. Growing up, I had my mom had cats. And then when I moved out, I couldn't really go back anymore. It like really affected me for some reason. I, I don't know if my body sort of adapted to the situation when I was a kid. And then when I wasn't in the situation anymore and I would go back intermittently, it would really, really affect me. I don't know. But I, lo- I still love watching the videos. Like, I-, I don't care if it's a capybara. I don't care if it's a tiger. I don't care what it is, like a possum. I'll watch all of them. And I think they're adorable and I think they're amazing. And now I even see stuff like cows or chickens, right? And I think it's really way- raising an awareness about the connection that we have with these animals. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, you mentioned Facebook. So I just recently posted a brief video clip of 
it's these pigs in this concrete pit. So these are pigs raised in some kind of factory situation. But you see one of them, one of the pigs jumping up to nuzzle and play with a dog. And their interaction, my God, if you looked at this pig, this pig is so excited, so happy to be playing with that dog. It is such a sweet moment. And this this video clip, you, you were asking about how many, you know, these videos go, you know, really viral on Facebook, for example. This one's been picked up by a lot of my followers and spread to, to their followers um, and their friends because it really shows how similar pigs are to dogs and to other animals. And, you know, we, we've kind of numbed ourselves to make ourselves feel comfortable. And this is one of the topics of my, my next book is that we've, we've kind of, um, whether it's been um, consciously or subconsciously created this divide, especially between ourselves and with other animals that we either eat or we use as tools for experimentation, or we use them for their fur and their skins. Whatever animals we use as commodities or as tools in some way, we have even more distanced ourselves from them. We have told ourselves, and we've convinced ourselves to some degree, that they are not like our cats and dogs. They are different. And, and the, the truth is very different, yeah. And the book you're talking about, that's going to be called Our Symphony with Animals, on health, empathy, and our shared destinies, right? And that comes out in May, I think? Yes, that comes out May 7th. Okay, so I'll link that in the description for anyone who wants to, to pre-order it. I encourage you to do so. Now, do you think that this distancing, do you think, I wonder, there's got to be two things going on. The first is that there's got to be some like systemic distancing. Some people, whether it be corporations, that want to hide factory farming from the eyes of the consumer. They don't want us to see animals in those situations. And there's also got to be a component where we want to hide it from ourselves. We don't, we, you know, we don't want to know that that evil exists. And which of those do you think is more prominent? <laughs> they both go, I, you know, it's a good question. I don't know which is more prominent. Um, you know, it's, I think what happens is we, as we humans have, we have an innate natural empathy for other animals. And I'm, I'm not trying to keep plugging my book, but this is something I really, really explore in the book. It's our natural empathy for other animals. And um, it comes out like when people see a video of an animal and they, you know, you know, they get excited. Why do you think animal videos are so ridiculously popular right now? Um, we naturally have that sense of kinship with them. We feel that. We feel that connection. We want to connect with other animals in some way. That's why 70% of the American population, 70% of the households have companion animals. We want to connect with other animals. So we have that natural empathy. And at the same time, we have to squash that empathy in order to to be comfortable with what's happening to animals in factory farms, in laboratories, in, you know, puppy mills, in um, fur farms, in other places like that. And so it's, there's two things going on. One is, as you said, these corporations are intentionally hiding these practices from us, right? Laboratories, no one can go and see an experimental laboratory. You can't, public can't go and view what's going on with these animals. They're hidden. They're all in the basements. Um, they're 
um, they're hidden from most people's view. They're in the basements of universities and so on. No windows to look in. Same thing with, with slaughterhouses. Same thing with factory farms. These are windowless sheds, long windowless sheds set apart. There are laws now to keep the public from seeing what's going on inside of these factory farms. They're called ag-gag laws. I know. I was watching yeah. a bunch of factory farming videos, and I was like, hmm, why aren't there any new factory – like, why did these videos suddenly stop being made, like, five years ago? And I, I learned that the other day, those ag-gag laws, which prevent you from from releasing video without the, the – consent of whoever owns the farm yeah that is insane yeah oh it is and it's all to keep these business it's all to prevent the public from seeing what's happening inside of these these places so the, yeah these corporations and this is our federal government too corporations and our federal government are intentionally doing their best to keep the public from seeing what's going on but we can't completely blame them we can't put all the blame on them because mm. we are also letting them do this. First of all, we're paying for these experiments on laboratories and a lot of industrial farming on animals with our tax dollars. And we're, if we're not protesting the use of our tax dollars in that way, in one way or another, we are essentially condoning what these businesses and, and our governmental agencies are doing to animals. The other thing is that, so, so we are supporting indirectly if not directly through our tax dollars and through our own purchases right you buy um you know you people love to talk about how they want to put bacon on everything well you know most people don't want to know about how that bacon was produced don't want to know that it came from a living breathing animal who really suffered horribly in order to create that little piece of food for you um and um so, so in that sense, we also want to turn our view away from, from what animals are doing. We've also changed our language. And this is another thing that we've done to sort of help numb our natural empathy for these animals. So we, you know, we're less and less referring to these animals as the individuals that they are. You know, we, you think about it, we're kind of dissecting animals into their parts now. Now cows and pigs and chickens are increasingly becoming bacon, um, you know, wings, legs, thighs, uh, veal, steak, flank. We're, we're slicing and dicing animals into their parts. And this further removes us from these animals as individuals. So that's with food animals. With laboratory animals, they don't even refer to animals as animals at all. Their animals now are becoming um, – People who experiment on animals are now referring to animals as models, tools, systems, and preparations. So again, completely disassociating ourselves from these animals as living beings. And so we're, we, are, we have and we continue to change our language to distance ourselves from these animals and remove ourselves from any discomfort we may otherwise feel about what's happening to them. Yeah, I have a question. This is maybe my, my ignorance about the medical field. I just don't understand. I'm not in it. I had, a couple months ago, I had uh, Dr. Joan Nichols on the podcast, and she is, I think, the director of the Galveston National Labs Medical Branch. I think that's what she was when she was on the show. I don't know if it's changed since then, but... She did. She runs a lab 
that tries to bioengineer lungs. And in testing those lungs, they transplant them into pigs, baby pigs. Now, I don't know how else you can do that type of research. So can you please educate me? How else, other than, you know, using these pigs as models, as you meant, you said that word, how else can we test certain medical practices? How do we do it? Is there alternatives? What, what, what can we do to change the fact that we do use animals as models? Yeah, it's, so one of the, before you even ask that question, I would suggest this question. Is, is the use of animals to study human biology, study human treatments, drugs, and so on, the best, is it the most, is it effective? Let's just ask that question first. And overwhelmingly research in the NIH, the FDA, for which I worked for, te- for a decade, uh, and um, um, the Director of Health and Human Services in the past have come out and said that 90% of the drugs that are tested on animals end up being unsafe or ineffective in humans. What that means is that 90% of the drugs that are found safe or effective in animals are later found to be unsafe or ineffective in humans. So that's a 90% failure rate, just right there. Does that that come, I'm curious, uh, is that associated with the fact that we would look more keenly at health effects of humans than we would health effects of a pig? Like, for example, if we approve a medicine in pigs, we're not looking at all of the harmful things that the medicine could potentially do to the pig, and we don't really start to realize those harmful effects until we start putting them in humans. This is, yeah, this, this is not the intention of, when the FDA evaluates these experiments on animals when they're deciding whether or not to prove a drug, first of all, to prove it, whether or not to go into clinical trials, which are human trials in the first place, they're asking these questions. Did, you know, what are the short-term, the mid-term, and the long-term effects in animals? So they would say that no, that no, they would answer no to your question that they, it is not because that they are looking at animal experiments differently from how they're looking at human trials or looking at the effects in animals differently from how they're looking at the effects in humans. That's not the reason. The reason ultimately, and this is coming out more and more in the medical literature, the reason is because there's just differences. There are biological, physiological, molecular differences between each species. I mean, you think about it. So you see, you see a monkey... You see all the physical differences on the outside. Those physical differences are because of ultimately differences in their in a molecular in the monkey's molecular biology and in their genetic expression. And what we're seeing is that even subtle differences in genetic expression and molecular biology between one animal and another, between one species and another, can lead to very far-reaching profound differences in, um, in biology and in de- disease expression and in whether or not a treatment is going to be safe or effective. And so this is why, because of this reason, we're now starting to see um, a real jump in some ways in um, corporations now that are in corporations in researchers now that are focusing on human-based biology methods. So there's the um, Wyss Institute, it's W-Y-S-S, up at Harvard, for example, who's gotten a lot of attention. They have a TED Talk. They're creating human lungs on a chip, human 
um, uh, livers on a chip, the human microbrain on the chip. They're trying to create human organs on a chip. So basically what they're doing is they're distilling the human organ down to its micro components, which is where everything happens. Mm -hmm. Disease happens, drug effectiveness happens, and so on. So a human lung on a chip actually functions. It breathes like a regular human lung. And with that human lung on a chip, they can test drugs. They can test, they can test disease progression. They can test whether a drug is going to be safe or effective. Now, that alone is not enough. And what their, their goal is to do is to link all of the different human organs on a chip to create the human body on a chip. What so do you mean it, when you say on a chip? So you, you distill the – so you're looking – you distill an organ down to a microchip. So it's a small little chip that has parts of the human lung on it that basically represents the entire human lung. I see. So the idea is that many – let me correct me if I'm wrong, but so the, the lung essentially functions as a sum of its parts. So rather than, than analyzing every single part like you would try to do in a pig, an actual pig lung, you can look at – just a small sliver of the actual human lung and see how it reacts to stimulus. Yeah, it, it, it's slightly that. It's more than just a sliver of the human lung. It's really a representation of the entire human lung onto a microchip. So the important parts of the human lung onto a microchip. I see. So then the reason why we're doing this and the reason why a lot of scientists are starting to do more and more of this, the reason why my... Um, Prior, my prior office that I worked for, the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats at the Food and Drug Administration, the reason why it gave money to the Wies Institute, the reason why DARPA gave something like 10 million something and lots of millions of dollars to the Wies Institute to create these lungs on a chip is that we're recognizing that you know testing these things on other animals just isn't cutting it. There's too many differences in biology here. So we need to be looking at human biology. And so there is now a shifting in focus to start creating methods that are focused on human-based biology. And how, what, what would those methods be? Is one of them computer simulations? Well, to... Yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's my question. Like how, how, how are we going to, to make the shift and in what time scale? Is this something we can start doing immediately, or do you foresee animal testing persisting for a long time? Yeah, so so let me see if I can remember your first question. So the first question was, oh, computer testing, right. Computer testing is being done to some degree now already, but we can certainly expand that. And we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of data on human toxicology, but no, one's, no one really is putting that data together in a singular computer-based model, for example. Yeah. That's so because that, computers suck, I would like to ask. <laughs> well, now, I will say it's two things. It, it, I don't know that it, the computers would suck in this, in this instance, but there's a lack of initiative and will to yeah. do this. Yeah. Um, I work with computers all day. I, I'm just making a joke about how they absolutely yeah. suck at everything. <laughs> Well, I just, I just suck at using them, I think is what it was. I think but, the latter is definitely with me. Um, yeah. so, so that's just one, though. So, for example, there is a the Human Spinal Cord Project, for example, which they're looking, they're taking imaging brain, uh, like um, MRI imaging of uh, spinal cords, whether, whether they're normal spinal cords or injured spinal cords in patients, 
live imaging, for example. They're taking autopsy results, um, and that includes imaging of people who died from spinal cord injuries. They're taking molecular analysis. They're taking computer modeling. They're taking a bunch of different and clinical trials. So these are human trials, human testing, ethical human testing. Results and they're combining all of these results to create the human spinal cord injury model. This is this is the type of thing we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. This is what's going to give us the most precise and and most the most precise and most efficient answers that we could ask for. Because again, we don't have to deal with okay. So we we found something in a pig or in a rat or in a dog or in a cat, but we have no idea if the results in a pig, a rat, dog, or a cat are going to apply to what we're going to ultimately see in humans until we actually do it in humans. And so you're 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 doing a lot of you're doing a lot of tentative testing on humans based on very questionable information from other animals. And that's putting humans at risk as well. So there there is this growing shift. And part of the problem though is that it's not happening enough. And that's because our federal government, our federal agencies, NIH, who's one of the largest funders of uh, research, is still very wedded to animal experimentation. Now, there are some inklings of changing happening. There's, there, they, they started a new initiative to, to kind of look at ways other than animal testing, more human-focused ways. Um, but that's not happening fast enough. And one of the problems is that one of the problems why we don't have more of these human-based testing methods available today is because we're not putting our money into it. So one of the complaints you'll hear from researchers who really want to keep using animals is that they'll say, oh, well, we have, yeah, animal experiments aren't really all, you know, aren't the best, but we don't have anything else. Well, we don't have anything else because we keep putting money into animal experiments because people like you keep saying we don't have anything else. So it becomes its own circular thing, and NIH and these other agencies need to start really heavily putting money into finding these other effective human-based testing methods if we want to break away from animal experimentation. It's funny. The exact same thing happens in like every sector of science. In climate change in particular, it's very big right now, where you say, okay, your methods for producing energy are not any good. Well, that's because you're not subsidizing companies. So they can get good at developing the technology. It's you are very yeah, yeah, you are exactly right. That's that's what's happening. And and you know, it's 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 incredibly frustrating. Having coming from the FDA and seeing that kind of answer again and again and again, it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and, and it's it's very popular. We tend to stick with what we know. And in many cases, that is why government is the least innovative body in the history of the world. Uh, most innovations happen in the private sector for that exact reason, which is why you need government to subsidize private sector advancements. But unfortunately, that is hard to come by, specifically in today's funding climate. Yeah, I, I tell you, I don't, I don't hear of uh, you know a lot of the most innovative people saying, "My lifelong goal was to go work for the FDA." So right. you know, we get a lot of people in these governmental organizations who've been there for a long time. They're used to doing things the way they've been doing things. They're not interested in changing. And we're not getting the brightest minds, I think, into our governmental organizations in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, and we mentioned climate change, and we're talking about government. So 
And we already talked about factory farming, but I would like to transition into talking about factory farming in more detail because I've been watching these factory farming videos, like I mentioned, and I I want to like throw up on myself. It's like it it's so vile. Now I should say real quick because I imagine when you give a lot of talks, when you talk to people, when you try to disseminate information, you probably get shut down a lot. Because, and this is actually one of the Patreon questions I was saying. Um, yeah, so I'll just ask this question because it's going along the lines of what I'm about to ask you. Do you think that your arguments often get misconstrued as vegan propaganda instead of your actual expert advice? Do you think people use that to discredit you? Yeah, all the time. But, you know, what is vegan propaganda? You know, it's any people could have said that about the slavery, anti-slavery movements, you know, the the women's emancipation movement. And, and I'm so, sure they did. I'm sure they yeah. did say that. Yeah. They used the same kind of labeling. So what is wrong with saying, hey, vegan is probably plant based diets is probably the best thing for us, for the environment, for animals, for mm -hmm. our future. If that's propaganda, then so be it. You know, but yeah. we, we also have the scientific evidence to back that up. Yes. Now to, to, to mention it to the viewers that this isn't vegan propaganda, I will say that I, I'm not a vegan. Uh -huh. I, I'm not a vegan. But one thing I try to do is be very conscious about the things we're talking about. I, I do my very best to not eat anything that is produced in this factory farm type environment. I try to by locally sourced food, places where you could walk up to the farm and you could see the cows running about in the pasture, all happy. In fact, I grew up in, in central Pennsylvania and as a freshman in college, I got a job. I needed a job. Every college student needs a job. And uh, I got a good paying job. It was about $20 an hour. Now as a freshman in college, that's a pretty good paying job. Most people would want that. What I was doing is I was working for a farm. And this was like a medium-scale farm. I wouldn't call it a factory farm. And in fact, this farm didn't even, you know, slaughter or produce meat. They merely grew calves. And they shipped them off somewhere else. And these cows had tons of room to roam about and whatnot. But one of the other things that this, that this uh, organization did was they transported cows from factory farms to other locations. And my job at that farm was to be the person that cleaned out the trailer when the trailer got back. And sometimes you would see the cows inside of this trailer. And it was absolutely vile. Now, as a college student, I don't have much choice to quit my job right away. Right? You have to take into account the fact that you need to support yourself and not be homeless. So I worked there for probably six months. And I, it, was, it was absolutely disgusting Okay, disgusting the way in which these cattle, even at this, what I would call a good quality farm compared to factory farming, how they were treated. And so I do my best because I've, I've seen it firsthand and I've worked in it. I do my best to try to not support companies that treat their animals that way. But it's really hard to do that because of what we mentioned before. Because of the fact that if I called up Tyson, which I would never eat a Tyson product or eat fast food, or, that stuff is so disgusting to me. Like, I don't know how as a kid I bit into a chicken nugget at McDonald's and didn't say, oh my God, what is this thing I'm eating? This can't be chicken. This is like foam. It's, I don't even understand how it could be chicken. It's yeah. disgusting. 
I, I used to love the McDonald's chicken nuggets. Yeah, when I was a kid, that's all I would eat. Wendy's, yeah. Burger King, I don't care. Just give me chicken nuggets. But as an adult, when I actually have to think about how that thing was produced, it, it is disgusting, absolutely vile to me. So one of the things I try to do is to, is to buy meat, to eat meat, that is sourced completely locally in the best type of environment that I could imagine it being sourced in. Obviously, raising something and killing it is never going to be completely clean. There's always going to be blood on your hands, if you will. Um, but what do you think about that alternative to, to a complete plant-based diet? Do you think there's merit to that? And as a health expert, do you think there's merit? Do you think that veganism is going to be the future of the world? Do you think we're eventually going to have to stop eating animals in, in, the, in the far future? What do you think? So I think what you're doing, if if more people did that or if everyone did that, I would be so much happier than I am right now mm-hmm. about how we treat animals because that is such a huge step in how we treat animals. You know, 97% of the animals that we eat are produced on factory farms. So that's the majority of animals. When you go out to a restaurant, your animals are most likely factory farmed animals. You know, Mm -hmm. everything people are eating just about are going to be factory farmed animals. And I would be so much happier if people did not eat factory farmed animals. So much happier. And yes, it would. It's, it's better for the animals and it's, there's, there's probably, it's probably better for us in a sense that it may reduce our risk of infectious diseases. Now, given that, though, I will say I do think our future is going to be plant-based. We cannot continue the way we are doing now. There are just such too much of a high demand for animal products that small family farms is just not going to be sustainable. It yeah, just will not I was produce. wondering. I, yeah. I tried to actually do some research into that recently, but it seems no one has, has really put thought into trying to analyze how much you know locally sourced food you would need to supply america and if it's even possible with the land we have i haven't seen anyone really do it and maybe it's because the answer is so obvious and i just don't know yeah it's it's not we do not have so the thing about the reason why factory farms are working right now is because they are very efficient Mm -hmm. right they're producing a lot of meat in very small spaces and so if we all go, if we try to produce the same number of animals out in family farms, we just don't have the land capability to do that. Right. We don't have it now. We're using most of, our, most of our human use of the land today on this earth is for animal farming in one way or another, either directly or indirectly by producing the crops mm-hmm. um, that are going to be used to feed these animals in these farms. So we don't even have the land really right now for factory farms, but we definitely will not have it if we try to produce all these animals in, you know, out in the range in the pastures. Yeah. And so, for most, yeah. most places geographically, it's not even possible for people to get locally sourced meat. Like if you live in Miami, Florida, yeah, you're not going to be able to eat much locally sourced anything. Nothing is going to be locally sourced by you except for, unless you're eating like crocodiles or alligators or snakes, that, there's nothing. I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I lived in Pennsylvania my whole life, and now I live in upstate New York. And both of those places are places where you can find a real abundance of farmed food, locally sourced food, whether it be vegetables, whether it be fruits, whether it be meat. 
you can find it. But that's not true for most places. Yeah, it's not true. And it's not how, you know, the the whole food market is set up mm-hmm. really right now. So there's a lot of barriers and I don't think ultimately it's going trying to produce animals to meet the demand we currently have on smaller farms is really a viable option. Now I will say that I do think two things are going to be happening. One is that we are going to shift towards um, these really great new plant-based products that are simulating meat. They're getting that feel, that Mm -hmm. taste, that texture, the smell, I guess, so much more than they used to in the past, right? Um, And these are really taking off. These products are really taking off. Um, And along with that, there is now a real effort to produce um, lab-based meat products, right? So you're growing the protein in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. And I know people right now feel a little squirmish about that idea, but it's just a matter of your perception. So I think people will, the next generation that grows up with that idea already in place won't feel so squirmish. It will just be the way things are. And then the following generation will be used to that. And these are going to be, you know, proteins that are cleaner. They can be made healthier, you know, than the alternative right now. So Mm -hmm. these two things I think are really going to change dramatically how we eat in the future for the better. I really believe the other thing is that I think is that's going to really shift how we eat is that, and this is something I, I, I really talk a lot about is that we our em- empathy for animals is growing. And it's, it's, it may seem surprising considering how many animals we, considering the fact that we cause more suffering in animals now than we ever have in human history, just by the sheer numbers of the animals used in factory farms and then in other types of industries like exploitation. But one of the things also that I'd like to point out is that that suffering that is caused by humans is consolidated, if you will, to a few corporations, right? So even though we're causing much more animal suffering today than ever before, maybe the number of humans that are directly... Obviously, we all eat meat. I don't want to say that, but... A lot of us eat meat with blinders on. We don't see the suffering. So the people that actually see the suffering have been consolidated down to just a few corporations. So while we are killing more animals than ever before, I would say the blood is on the hands of less people. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, you're excellent point. So the direct blood, let's say that, the direct blood is in the hands of less people. Um, and so, and again, going back to what we discussed before is because our empathy is so strong for animals that we, we can't do it any other way. If we want to continue these practices on animals, the only way to do it is by removing our, most of us, removing ourselves from the practice. That's why it's getting into fewer and fewer hands. But so I, I do think that our empathy for animals is growing. And I think that part of it is that we're realizing that we are not so different from other animals, not in the ways that count at least, you know, not in the, yes, we have greater capabilities in many areas, but in the parts that really count as far as how we treat other beings, we're not so different. Other beings suffer, other beings, you know, want to, uh, don't want to be separated from their families. They, they can love, they can, you know, they, 
they can enjoy the sunshine. They, they, you know, experience these capabilities like we do. So we're recognizing that. And at the same time, I think that we're starting to recognize that our well-being ultimately is tied in with the well-being of other animals as well. You know, we're, if you think about how um, with each generation, our empathy for other groups of people kind of expands, right? You mm -hmm. think that in the past, victims of domestic violence were ignored. We used to blame the women. In the past, you know, um, prejudice um, and abuse of gays or transgenders was ignored or laughed at or, you know, ridiculed. We're changing now, right? Mm -hmm. We're changing where our empathy for these groups is growing. With generation. Yeah. And I believe that inevitably what's going to happen is we're going to realize that our empathy for other animals is growing as well. Empathy for animals is the inevitable inevitable result of our empathy for other humans. It's going to happen. So I think that over time, and what I hope to see, and what I truly do believe, our species will become kinder towards animals as well as towards humans, and we'll be wanting to see them suffer less. And in that sense, we'll be not seeing them so much as meat, but seeing them as extensions of ourselves more and more. So we're not going to want to be eating them as much in the future. Yeah, it's convincing. And I think that that may very well be what we see. And I, I hope it happens before we start journeying out amongst the stars. That way, when we if we ever do run into another civilization, we don't just murder them on the spot, which will probably be what would happen if we were to journey amongst the stars right now. Because well, we, you know, oh, sorry. Well, we are very much a culture that has done that in the past. We, <laughs> yeah. we we journey onto someone's land, and then we decide that that land belongs to us, and we uh, you know murder, whether purposely or inadvertently, everyone who occupies that land. I mean, that's the cornerstone of America, right? It's a cornerstone of hu human beings, I think. It's, uh, we've been doing this throughout our history. But coinciding with that, though, we, are a, we can be incredibly kind species as well. Yes, I agree. And we see, we see that. We see that. And I think it's when we, we take the blinders off and when we see others as individuals, not as groups, when we see them as individuals, we see them as more like us than unlike us. And the same thing is going to happen with other animals. We're going to rem be reminded of their individuality. And so we're not, we're, we're going to see them more like us than unlike us. You know, the thing about the aliens that you were talking about, you know, I always wonder, you know, the same excuses. Could you imagine if an alien species came down to Earth and said, well, you humans, you're not as intelligent as we are. You're not as capable of experiencing these kinds of emotions as we are of building cities and writing poetry the way we do. So we're, you know, we're going to use you as a resource. You know, of course, we would we, we'd be saying, what the hell? You know, yeah. we, we'd be all complaining about that, right? And that's been, that's yeah. matter. Yeah. But that's what we do to other species. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's a very good point. I think it's a very good point. It's something people don't think about enough. And yeah. I'm glad that the internet is, is, I think, changing that. It's one of the things that the internet is changing, actually, is empathy for each other. And like you said, empathy, empathy for each other will eventually breed empathy for things that are not like us, animals and things of the like. Now, I want to switch gears to talk about some topics that were in your previous book, as well as the, the impact that factory farming has on climate change. 
I talk about climate change all the time on this podcast. In fact, two episodes ago, I had Stephen Pakala on, and he is a one of the top experts in the world on carbon mitigation techniques. So I encourage you to go listen to, to that episode. But I was looking up some statistics about how much factory farming impacts climate change, how much greenhouse gases it produces, because it's a ton. I, rem- I Like I said, I remember I used to work on that, that farm, and you couldn't, you couldn't be in this trailer where these animals had been for longer than like an hour at a time. Or like you would, you could feel the physical difference. You feel lightheaded. You feel, you know, because you're breathing in all of these gases that are filling this small confined space that these animals had to be in for a couple hours as they were transported from one location to the next. But according to a 2006 report by the uh, Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, the FAO, animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of all human-induced greenhouse gas. That's 37% of methane and 65% of nitrous oxide, which is a ton. A absolute ton. And I I saw in your TED Talk, you mentioned that this is more than all of transportation in the United States. It's more than all of transportation in the world. Yeah. And I was looking that, I was trying to find that cited somewhere. And I, I did see some people who were contending that figure. Some people in the field, in the, not necessarily like, you know, anti-vegan. I don't want to, you know, talk about that. But people in the in the climate change world who, who were contending that figure a little bit and saying that uh, the, the data analysis techniques were maybe a little faulty in that paper. And so that, that number is, is up in the air. But one thing that's for sure is it's at least comparable. It's at least comparable. The effects of factory farming are at least comparable to the effects of transportation, which is most people, I think if you polled most people on that, they would say that the two are nowhere near one another because you can see the exhaust on your car. You can see the fumes coming out of it. And you can't necessarily see the fumes coming out of a factory farm. Well, some people who live near one would debate that, actually. Yeah, so um, I, I visited some of these farms re- a few years back in Oklahoma. You visited and, factory farms? Yeah. Okay. Um, because I had a contact, so I was able to get in through this contact. Um, so um, it was... Um, it within, I, I don't even know if it's in five seconds, within 10 seconds, my eyes and lungs were burning. I wanted to gag. It was so horrendous. The fumes, the stench was absolutely horrendous. And, um, it, it, it was, it was just overwhelming. I'm amazed I didn't throw up there. It was just overwhelming. And, um, you know, you think about that, this is, this is me for a few seconds inside a building and I experienced this. And, um, you know, you think about what those animals who live their lives there must experience. It, it's just horrible. Um, but this is was one farm and it was a relatively small farm con- compared to what some of the largest farms are like. And it was just horrendous. And you can smell the stench as you approach the farm from the distance mm-hmm. as you the reason why people hear about the transportation sector so much, cars, planes, trains, and automobiles, is because for a long time, um, the climate 
change scientists didn't acknowledge the impact animal agriculture was having on the environment. Because you think about it, that means that they're going to have to change their way of eating. If they Mm -hmm. really cared about climate change, and if they're going to acknowledge the climate, the agriculture's impact on climate change, they're going to have to make some hard decisions on their own lifestyles. Otherwise, they're going to be viewed as hypocrites. Right. And and to be honest, these people didn't want to. They didn't want to change their lifestyle. So it it it's only now coming out more and more. And the the Food and Agricultural Organization study you cited has been, um, it's it's been. You said there was some contention with the analysis. Actually, those figures have been replicated again and again. And there was a more recent study that just came out in this past year that pretty much said the same thing mm. um, and and really highlighted animal agriculture as one of the most, if not the most, the greatest contributor to climate change right now. And there, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is the production of animals is is causing this increase in ammonia, um, nitrous oxide, as you said, and methane. This is something that people don't think about. Methane is coming from cows, and grass-fed cows actually produce more methane than industrial farmed cows. Mm-hmm. So grass-fed cows for climate change is not a, not a really good option. So methane is a huge contributor to climate change to greenhouse gases. So, so one is they... Uh, industrial animal farms are directly contributing to these greenhouse gases. Two, animal farms are using are a, a significant user, and I don't have the numbers on me, but a significant user of our water and our 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 land um, indirectly through feed crops. Okay, so a significant user of our water. You know, one of the things I don't know if you remember back in um, I guess two years ago when California was making a big deal about the drought. Mm-hmm. That it was experiencing, and it was yeah. asking people not to water its lawns. Well, one thing it failed to recognize was that mo- much more water was being used for the animal agriculture industry in California than what was being used to water yeah. lawns. I actually have <laughs> figures if you if you want me to to tell them. Oh, you do? I, yeah, yeah. I, I I was I was looking at this. Um, so and I was amazed. So what I did is I calculated my own water usage per week or per day rather. So there's this cool, I'll link it down below. I think it's a Nat Geo website link. And you can like type in how long you take a shower, how long you brush your teeth, how long you wash your dishes, how long you do the laundry, whatever. And it'll calculate roughly how many gallons of water you use a day. Mine came out to 200 per day for my household, which is, I would think, a hell of a lot of water, right? But then you look at how much water it takes to produce certain agricultural things. So a single egg... And this is California numbers. A single egg takes 53 gallons of water. Which Jeez. boggles the mind. And then you look at like a pound of beef is comes in at 1,800 gallons of water per pound uh-huh. of beef. Now, f- for the sake of, of consistency, I did not want to give the impression that, that animal farming is the only thing that sucks the water. Because that we have a problem across all of agriculture with the amount of water we use. So three mandarins would take 45 gallons. A head of lettuce would take 10 gallons. A gallon of water could produce a single almond. So it is a problem across the board, but it is it is a bigger problem when it comes to me. It is. It frankly is. I'm not trying to, to downplay that in any way. But I, I want to, you know, sort of give you some 
baseline numbers. A gallon of water gives you an almond. 1,800 gallons of water gives you a pound of beef. Yeah, no, there's no denying, you know, that agriculture is going to use a lot of water. And um, actually, I'm, I'm so glad you had those figures because those are mind-boggling. The thing that people um, don't always understand, though, is that we the, the production of animal protein is incredibly inefficient. And so we are, use, we are using most of our land, agricultural land, most of our land, most of our water, our pesticides, our insecticides, our um, other industrial chemicals, not directly on animals, but indirectly by producing the feed crops that go into animals. So it takes about, and the, the figures will, will change depending on what source you are, but let's say the average, it takes about 10 pounds of plant protein to, to make one pound of meat protein. That's an incredibly, incredibly inefficient process. Mm -hmm. So all the resources that went into making, you know, that plant, that meat protein could have instead made 10, 10, you know, times that amount of plant protein that could have been used to feed more people. So uh, that, that is why it is animal agriculture is, again, also a significant contributor to, contributor to uh, climate change. And another thing that people don't think about, and it's just starting to come into some analysis, is that factory farming produces a lot of infectious diseases and a lot of waste. I wanted to talk to you about this because yeah. you're someone, in, you know, I can wrap my head around the climate change ideas, being that I am a physicist and I, you know, talk about climate change a ton. But one of the things I can't wrap my head around is how our treatment of animals contributes to the, the spread of epidemics across whatever part of the world, whether it be America or, or Asia or wherever. So, so how is this a problem central to factory farming or is, is eating meat in general can cause these sort of spread of diseases? So from, from animals, you can always, any animal, you mm -hmm. could be getting um, bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, and that's because... These bacteria are intestinal bacteria. They live in the guts. And that's of true of plants too, humans. right? You could eat a head no. of lettuce and it's not true. I no, mean in terms not, of like E. coli not, being not, on the... Not directly. The Let me explain. Yeah, okay. let me explain why. Because so animals and humans have guts. Mm -hmm. Back, uh, e. coli, salmonella, um, you know, other bacteria like that. They live in the guts of humans and animals. Plants don't have guts. Right. So lettuces, sprouts, tomatoes, you name it, they don't naturally carry these bacteria. Okay. Now what happens is they can become contaminated. Either they become contaminated by humans, people <laughs> scratching their bums, picking their nose, whatever, when they're processing these animal these uh, products at a plant. The usual or, or, which is probably more likely, these plants become contaminated when the manure from factory farms is spread over these crop fields. And so you, you're thinking, you think about this, we, we are taking, people don't know what to do with all the manure that's being produced from factory farms. Mm -hmm. So there is now, the way to, to, the way to deal with this manure is to spread it as a liquid sludge, a goo over our crops. And that is directly contaminating our vegetables as well. So no, if we were just producing these plants without animal manure, we would, I'm not to say, I'm not going to say that we would completely reduce, uh, cut, cut our risk to zero, 
because there's always a risk of human contamination of these products. But we would significantly reduce our risk of these bacteria because plants don't normally carry these bacteria. Right. They are not carrying them in their guts because they don't have guts. Okay, so that is how we can we will can always catch these bacteria. Now, from any animal. Okay, now, um, the thing with factory farming is that it does increase our risk for these bacteria and, and for dangerous viruses. And this is why, is because in factory farms, we are taking animals who are, very, who are sick, who are miserable, we're putting them into miserable conditions. So what happens is their immune systems are down because they are miserable. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier for them to catch on, to catch infectious diseases. And then because they are so crowded, in these factory farms, it's so easy for animals to pass the infection onto another animal. And so very quickly, an infectious disease could spread like wildfire in a factory farm. And so then you could have, you know, more animals infected with, with E. coli and, um, you know, other bacteria. And this is also probably going to be what's going to happen with the influenza virus. And we are seeing that now um, more and more with the influenza virus. So when people think about epidemics and pandemics, you know, they think of things like Ebola, uh, I'm sorry, not Ebola, Ebola, yeah. um, and, you know, other, other things that sound much scarier. But for public health folks like myself, the scariest virus out there is the influenza virus. And it may not seem scary to the public because we all think, oh, we all get the annual flu and, you know, it's miserable, you're miserable for a week, but then... You're done with it, right? And you survive and, you know, you're no worse for it at the end. Mm -hmm. the, the reason why the influenza virus, though, is the most dangerous and the scariest to public health folks is because unlike Ebola, at least Ebola currently, and many other viruses, the influenza virus can become airborne. We pass it to each other through the air. We don't need direct contact with the bodily fluid of someone else, as is, in, as is the case with Ebola. So influenza can spread very quickly from human to human, and it can spread very quickly from animal to animal in, in industrial farms. And what we're finding is, so, so let, me, let me backtrack for a second. All influenza viruses, we believe, come from aquatic birds originally, so like wild geese, wild ducks. Um, but humans rarely become sick from direct contact with these animals. That's because something happens, has to happen to the influenza virus for it to cause harm to us. And this is where factory farms come, come into play. So an influenza virus can very easily enter a factory farm. And once it does, it will spread from animal to animal like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And as it does that, it mutates very rapidly. And each time the virus mutates, it could mutate into a more dangerous form. And so we think that um, this is what we're seeing now with these, you know, we're seeing epidemics of bird flus and swine flus sweep across factory farms in the U.S., factory farms in England, in, in Europe, across Asia, even in the Middle East now, all the time. These swine and bird flus are happening all the time. And even though the media doesn't necessarily, you know, discuss them. But what's happening is that the virus is mutating in these animals. It's mutating, and what, what we fear is that it's going to mutate into a form that ultimately is going to be very dangerous for human beings because we can share that influenza virus with other birds and with pigs. Do we? This is a question. 
that relates to this. Do we use the same antibiotics in animals that we do in humans? Some of them. There's slight difference, but there's enough crossover that um, bacteria can. There's enough. So there's there's slight there's a slight variation in the antibiotics that are used in animals in farms versus what used in humans. Mm -hmm. But the bacteria can create um, resistance. The, the resistance that they create against the antibiotics that they are that are being pumped into animals can also transfer to resistance against human antibiotics. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And also, as it corresponds to the flu, the bird flu, the swine flu, is the reason that these things are so hard to prepare for, is that because of the, the amount of mutations that happens to the actual virus as it travels across these factory farms, so that by the time that it gets to humans, it, we don't actually understand what it is, in a sense? It's been mutated so much that the 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 flu vaccine, so to speak, isn't actually going to, to protect us from this mutated form of the flu. We're always, idea? yeah, we're always playing catch up with the flu vaccine. We, we don't know what next strain of yeah. influenza we're going to see out there. So we'll, we might get inklings. We knew we see one flu that's kind of coming from parts of Asia or parts of Africa or South America. And the World Health Organization and the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, for example, will start to think, huh, this might be a predominant strain, and so we want to gear the, the vaccine against that. So the problem is we are always playing catch-up to the flu vaccine. We don't know. We can't predict what new mutation is going to come, and we can't predict which mutation is going to be a problem for us. There's so many strains out there constantly. There's so many coming out of factory farms constantly. What I what what is most likely going to happen is one of these strains is going to catch us by surprise. One of these strains is going to end up being very dangerous. It's going to rapidly spread around the globe before we have a chance to create a vaccine. And even when we do, um, even in when we do, if and when we are able to create a vaccine against that strain, it will be after a lot of people have died. It will be after a lot of people have suffered, after there's a lot of calamity. And that vaccine will only be good for that strain. Then if we continue our practices, if we continue factory farming, a new strain will emerge. Right. New strains will continue to emerge from factory farms. Do we know the circumstances behind the 2009 influenza that, that affected some something like 50,000 people in the U.S.? What, what? Yeah. Well, we know some things that are highly suspicious. So the okay. first human, the first boy who, the first human case, what we call the index case, came from a town in Mexico. This was a town where there happened to be a lot of Smithfield big pig farms. Naturally. And so it, it is suspected that 2000 and the 2009, um, and I don't know if you recall, it used to be called, what was it, uh, swine flu at yeah. the time before... Uh, uh, organizations changed its name to distance ourselves from the potential source. So um, it did they? Did, is that was that the reason that did they start calling it H one N one or something? Yeah. Is yeah. that the reason? Yeah. Wow, that I never even realized that. Oh That's yeah, yeah. At, at the time, if you look at the CDC website, they actually had links to the pork producers of America, so that people would know that you don't get swine flu from eating pork products, which is true, but it was also to 
it was kind of deceptive in the sense that no, you don't, you you're not going to get swine flu from eating the, the pork products, but there's strong evidence that swine flu came from the production of pork products. So how does so, like, so a human has to like come in contact with like I I don't know like I know they have these big lagoons right where they put all the for lack of a better term they put all of the shit yeah they just run it off like a stream and put it in these giant lagoons. A human coming in contact with that could be a catalyst for, you know... And, of course, that seeps into the ground, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. So It gets into our water. It gets into our streams. It gets into our riverbeds. Um, but for flu, this is why it's so dangerous. You don't need to have direct contact. Right, right. Airborne. You're saying that, yeah. It is airborne. So what could have happened is that uh, a, a, someone who was working at one of these Smithfield pork farms... Came out, you know, went home, mm -hmm. infected someone else. He was carrying the virus. He infected us, and he might not have gotten sick, you know. And he, but he transferred the virus to someone else. It could have been his son that got it. It could have been someone else. It spread to other people that way. Eventually, to this first boy that we know of who got sick, and then you saw how quickly it spread. It spread around the globe. Now, at oh, yeah. that, I remember it feeling like it was the end of the world. How old was I then? Fourteen. 14, oh my God. Uh, maybe, I don't know, 2009. Yeah, I was like something like that, 14 or something. Oh my God. Um, you yeah. know, we were, if, Brendan, if I could just add, we were very lucky though, because it ended up not being as dangerous, as lethal as we were um, afraid of. So yes, it spread very quickly. So it was one that could go, you know, it could, it could spread quickly around the globe, mm -hmm. but it didn't kill in the numbers that public health folks really feared. It killed a lot of people, but it didn't kill as rapidly as people had feared at the time. So we were lucky that time. But next time, I don't think we're going to be as lucky. It's so interesting to see the hold that agriculture has on political America because of what you just said, how we've changed the name H1N1 instead of swine flu and these ad gag laws. It... Like, is there any other production anywhere where you're not allowed to see inside of the factory? Is there well, any? Yeah, so... Like, I feel like if a I want lot, to... A lot of these facilities that herd animals are, are a part of that. So, yeah, I will add experimental laboratories. I will add um, some of the circuses that use animals. They, they are, they're hiding their practices of how they so-called train these mm -hmm. animals. Um, puppy mills, as I mentioned before, uh, they're parts of the wildlife trade. And I'm not talking about the illegal wildlife trade. I'm talking about the legal wildlife trade. Many parts of the wildlife trade that are pretty much hidden from the public's view as well. There, I would say any, any business, any practice that uses animals as a commodity, as a tool, has something to hide. Yes. Because you cannot use animals in these ways without hurting them. Right. And there are, and as we know, there are, this is happening with a lot of human cases as well, right? There's sweatshops mm -hmm. that are being hidden from I was going to say, like yeah. sneakers, sneaker makers are probably, you know, hiding. You know, Adidas doesn't want you to see the 12-year-old Filipino kids that they have making the sneakers for them. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, but. It's a common practice, unfortunately, is to is. hide yeah. from us what is unethical. Yeah. So that that's the connection then, but your book, your previous book. Animals and public health. That's the, the connection is that we put these animals in these tight spaces where 
they're depressed, where they're sad, where they have no movement, their physical health is deteriorating, they get infected, the infection spreads rapidly, and then the infection can spread into humans too. That's the connection. The connection is that, you know, we, we put these animals in such demeaning positions where infection is rampant, and then we consume the animal, or we come in contact with animal products. Is, is that the, the, the essence of why you wrote the book, to, to illuminate that? Yes, absolutely. And you said it so well. Um, you know, it's the another way of putting it is that by hurting animals, we are also hurting ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we want to help ourselves, but I guess the flip side is by being kind to animals, by being compassionate to animals, we're helping ourselves. Yeah. Now your your new book that's coming out. What, what yeah. motivates you to write that book? What's the what's the underlying question or 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 concept that you want to instill upon the public? The new book is different. The first book was an academic book, and mm -hmm. this new book is not an academic book. It is geared towards the general public. Never thought after I read the first book that I would ever write another book. But over time, I started thinking about what I could do next to illuminate a lot of the connections between ourselves and animals and how our well-being is tied to the well-being of animals. And it was inspired by my own personal story. So as a child, I was sexually abused by an uncle. And at the time, my grandparents had adopted a dog mm -hmm. named Sylvester, the first animal I ever came to know. And I loved him, loved him, loved him. And um, he he ended up being very, for me at the time, uh, a great sense. Uh, he provided a great sense of emotional support while I was going through my own abuse. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was Sylvester ended up being abused as well in a different way. He was physically abused by, um, by my another uncle at the time. And over time, at some point, I learned to see his abuse, his hurting as the same as mine. And eventually, I learned to stand up for him. And that gave me the courage to stand up for myself. So I ended my own abuse, and I ended his. And so that story inspired me to now look as an adult and as a neurologist specifically, because I look back and I know that it was my empathy for Sylvester that allowed me to see the connection between what was happening to both of us. Mm -hmm. And that gave me the strength to change the, our lives, both of our lives as well. And so now as a neurologist, I wanted to know where does that, does that empathy come from, that empathy for other animals? And, you know, is, is that empathy for animals changing? And what does that empathy for animals mean for us? And what happens when we, when we um, let that empathy grow? What happens on the other flip side is if we squash our empathy for animals. So I, I went, it, the writing of the book and the, everything that went behind it was a five-year endeavor. So I basically went around the country and I started looking at the way different people have been impacted by their empathy for animals or on the flip side, their lack of empathy for animals. So... I um, I interviewed a serial killer, you know, who mm -hmm. had abused animals and ended up having very surprising uh, moments with him. And, um, you know, so, so I was looking at both sides. And then the ending was, you know, what happens when we recognize 
our empathy for animals and does that help us as well? So when we recognize our empathy for animals, the conclusion of the book is basically not only is it good for animals, it's also good for us as well. So it's, it's a very narrative driven book with science and medicine woven in as well. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up first in London okay. and then um, we moved from London to Arlington, Virginia. Very interesting. This is something I've, I've, I've noticed. Um, as a kid, I grew up in a, in a very poor part, and I'm curious if your experiences sort of agree with this, in a very poor part of Pennsylvania, one of the most poor, maybe one of the most poor regions in the entire entirety of America. The poverty rates are like in the 40%, like everyone's in poverty. No one is living a good life in that, in that area of central Pennsylvania. It's like, the, you know, it's the opioid belt. Um, and so one of the things that I notice actually, when I think back about my childhood is how incredibly bad, like the, the shittiest people in the town had a dog and they always treated that dog so terribly. Mm -hmm. I remember growing up and like, for some reason, never met a Rottweiler. I don't know why Rottweiler, I don't get it. Everyone had them and they always treated them so poorly. And I have noticed, maybe it's because I'm not in that situation anymore. But I have noticed a, a, a change in, in as I move to a wealthier area, area, as I move out of central Pennsylvania and into northern Pennsylvania at first. I move to a wealthier area. I notice the treatment of animals improves. And then I move to a wealthier area in Rochester, New York. And I notice the cohesiveness that animals seem to have with human beings. And how, like, there will be dogs inside Starbucks and, and stuff like that. And it's just very interesting how... Poverty tends to breed the way we treat other humans very poorly, right? And, and when you're in poverty, you, you see people getting shot in poverty. You don't see as many people getting shot in rich neighborhoods unless they're being robbed by people who are in poverty. Um, that's true. But you also see animal abuse take, take hold in poverty. You see human abuse take hold in poverty. And I see the connection that you're, you're trying to make. It's apparent to me. I see it. And I remember being in the Czech Republic recently, like last year, two years ago maybe. And I remember seeing a dog get abused there. And I wasn't, you know, I was just sort of like wandering around Prague. And Prague is by no means like a wealthy area. Um, in fact, I think all of Eastern Europe really isn't a wealthy area. But I was walking around Prague and I remember seeing a dog getting abused like on the street in like a public square. Like everyone's around. And this dog is just getting beat because it's not listening. Like kicked, punched. No one's reacting. No reaction at all. Like, this is completely normal. And as a tourist in America, if you see this in America, there's going to be, like, people jumping the dude who's kicking the dog, right? Everyone, Everyone's going to try to defend the dog, I feel like, at least where I live now, maybe not where I lived before. But no one came to this dog's rescue. And they all just walked about like it was normal. And part of me, I was like, should I, like, try to defend this dog? Or am I going to get shot if I try to defend this dog? I don't know how to react. And... I wonder if, if there's a, if, if that's a very real connection that you saw as you traveled to different areas. Did you see that the way we treat animals is correspond, corresponds in some way to our wealth, both physical and mental wealth, you know, in terms of our self-awareness? Is, is there very apparent connections there? Sorry for my long-winded... No, um, no, you're, you know, you're absolutely, you know, the, there's definitely cultural differences in in how we view animals and what's acceptable treatment for animals um 
So as far as, so I will say this, I saw definitely a correlation between our mental wealth and, and in that, how you defined it by our mental awareness of others and how we treat animals. As far as physical wealth, poverty and, and wealth in that sense, not really so much. And I think one, one of the reasons is, is that I think perhaps in more impoverished areas, we might be more likely to see the abuse of other animals, whereas yeah, it's exactly. more hidden, whereas it's more hidden in wealthier, because there's more of a, a cultural, there's, there's a more of a cultural non-acceptance of any kind of physical violence in wealthier sectors of our society. Yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen because as we know, there are a lot of domestic violence victims in wealthy, wealthy families. As oh yeah. You, in in yeah. poor neighborhoods, there's an open door policy. Not because, exactly. not, not because, you know, we don't shut the door, but because most people just can't afford them. So they just have that screen door and everyone sees in and you're beating your wife or you're beating your dog and everyone knows. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's 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 hidden. It's hidden. I think yeah, it's it's just more hidden in in wealthier areas. But but there there may be some correlation also with you know, education and to some degree and um self-awareness and uh well, definitely self-awareness and uh, awareness of others and how we treat animals. But I I meet incredibly incredibly beautiful kind people who lack any kind of you know, financial means in comparison to you meet my, well, I'm not going to go political, but you, you can meet some very wealthy people who are incredibly cruel. So it's, it's, I, I wouldn't necessarily draw the line there at, at, at wealth in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as people whose lives have been impacted by their treatment of animals and whether or not their lack of empathy and kindness towards animals is also seen in their lack of empathy and kindness towards humans. That is definitely, without a doubt, what I saw. People who tend to be kinder towards animals in general tend to be kinder towards other humans. That's not always the case, but in general. And especially if people who are kinder towards animals because they get that connect, if they get that connection, if they understand, if you if they think about social causes, for example, and they understand that connection that we are not isolated, you know, um, in any way from whether we're talking about other minority groups or other groups, other populations around the world or with other animals, that we are all interconnected in how we treat each other. The, when people get that, there is a very strong link between how they view other animals and how they view other people as well, and in their kindness towards both groups. Yeah, it's definitely something I, I do this thing all the time where I assume even at 23 years old, I do this thing where I assume that mental health, mental wealth, as I defined it, is the same as physical wealth. And I think that's just a product of growing up in an environment that doesn't have much physical wealth, because I assume that like in order to, to get to the top of the mountain, if you will, you need to be rich. You know, if you're rich, then you feel good. That's sort of the connection I make. So I, I do that a lot. Like I, I, I do that a lot. I will tell you as a doctor that that is not the case. <laughs> there are a lot of people. People get to yeah. that top, and then they are miserable people. They're and I, like, and I know that. Hmm? I said, and I know that when I think yeah. about it. But it's like something in 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 my in my subconscious that sort of just like blurts out whenever I'm talking about wealth. It's just built in. It's programmed. 
Yeah, well, we all, we, you know, it's the American dream. Uh, we all think that that dream can only be fulfilled through, right, through physical wealth, through mm -hmm. money. And um, I think, I think that with younger generations, there's, they may be starting to get that that's not necessarily the case. Um, I, from what I've been reading, like millennials, um, for example, that they are foregoing jobs that make them miserable, high paying jobs that might make them miserable for less just to be happy. Um, so I think, um, you know, yeah. you, you know, it, it's, yeah, I try to do that. I, 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 I try to do that in my own life. You know, I, yeah. I really try to make that effort, but at the end of the day, like, for some reason, there's dollar bills in my eyes, and I can't, yeah. I can't shake it, and it's prevalent in like everyone I know. You know what I mean? It's, it's just there, and it's just well, a we, factor of how we were raised in this country. It is, and we, we need it. Obviously, we need money to survive, and mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't. For many people, for most of us, I would say we cannot be happy, or at least achieve some, some element of happiness, unless we can feel that confidence that we don't have to struggle day to day for our basic survival. Um, but on the flip side, wealth does not necessarily equal happiness. If anything, I would think that it's kind of the opposite for, for most of these people who achieve that kind of wealth. Oh, yeah. And the great Kanye West once said, having money's not everything, not having it is. And that's the last yeah. Kanye West quote that we'll ever have on this podcast. So we're done. We're done with <laughs> Kanye West. What do you think about insect consumption? I see a lot of a lot of new proteins. Cricket protein is a big one being uh -huh. introduced. Wait, how do you think about that? Like we have to draw a line somewhere. Everyone does, like a, an ethical line. Yeah. You don't want to eat cows, we don't want to eat pigs, you don't want you certainly don't want to eat dogs or cats. What about insects? Yeah, you know, it's 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 always an interesting question. So there's no way that as human beings or as any living creature we can live lives that you know don't come cause harm to anyone mm -hmm. right there is just it's just not possible so the goal isn't about being this living this perfect pure life that exists only in fairy tales that's that's not the goal the goal is to try to i would say is to try to live a life that causes as least amount of suffering as possible right mitigation not prevention well, both. Both. Okay. Prevention. You want to prevent suffering, ideally, mm -hmm. right? And so, so, but, but by, you know, not by trying to, uh, you know, um, uh, try to achieve this purity, but, but, but by trying to be conscious of the decisions you make day to day. Crickets and other animal and other insects. I don't know if it that will ever take off. I doubt it. I oh, doubt so, it. It's I think, just. Mm. I think humans. I think we kind of have an innate squeamishness to that. Um, oh yeah. And the other thing is, honestly, I, I think plant-based meats or plant-based proteins and meat grown in the lab is just going to take off. And that's going to end up being a much more viable and palatable alternative than insects will be. Yeah. Can I take like 10 more? I know we, we agreed on an hour and a half. Can I take like 10 more minutes? Sure. Because I want to ask you about something else yeah. you do. You're yeah. also the deputy director of the Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program. Is that true? Yes. What are the parallels? I, I, do you know who Chris Benoit is? You no. Heard of this? Okay. When yeah. I was a kid, I loved professional wrestling. 
loved it. The fake wrestling where they hit each other with chairs and stuff. <laughs> I've since graduated into into real fighting. Now I love that instead. But back then, I really loved pro wrestling. And Chris Benoit is a professional wrestler. He was, actually. And in 2007, he killed his wife, his kid, and himself. And then they analyzed his brain, and they saw that he, due to tons of concussions he's had, he had the brain of an 80-year-old man with dementia. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's likely the very, the reason that he decided to snap and kill his whole family was because his brain had been deteriorated so badly. Is this, do you think this is happening in some animals? So you, I was looking at your website, you talked about Tyke the Elephant, but there's also orcas at SeaWorld that snap and, and kill people that just all of a sudden they were fine, you know, one day they snap and now they're killing everyone. Do you think this is a, a reaction to trauma? whether it be psychological or physical trauma to the brain from abuse? I think it's definitely a reaction to psychological trauma. Physical trauma, I think that these, I don't know how often these animals are getting hit hit in the head, right? Right. Um, we do know that they do get whipped. They, you know, they get shackled. They live mm-hmm. their lives in shackles, These, especially these animals in entertainment and in roadside zoos and these, you know, circuses. Um, so these animals are, um, they're abused definitely without a doubt, but, um, I don't know anything about how much head trauma they're getting. So I couldn't comment on that. I do. What I suspect is that they're experiencing psychological trauma. And just like with any of us, at some point, a lot of us will snap with that kind of systemic lifelong abuse will just snap. And this is what we've seen with some of the elephants at some of these circuses who just went on rampages and ended up killing their, their trainers and, and other, other folks as well. Um, it's whether they, whether or not they have, you know, the same kinds of, um, physiological changes going on in their brain, like this wrestler that you mentioned, I have no idea. I, you know, I don't, know if anyone has anyone if anyone's even bothered to do any kind of autopsy on the brains of these animals i doubt it um but there is no reason to suspect that they will not suffer in many of the same ways that we would given the same conditions or similar conditions yeah so there you have it people that's what we got to do we got to try to live better you know and just like i don't expect you to go buy a buy a tesla right now you know, you can continue driving your gas-powered car, but you have to acknowledge that in the future, the gas-powered car is going to change, the hybrid car is going to take over, and eventually the electric car is going to take over. Because that's the situation we have to create for ourselves if we want to have a successful planet in the long run. And that may very well affect the things you eat, too. Well, it does affect the things you eat. And within your lifetime, you may see changes happen with the things that you eat in order to preserve life here on earth so i thank you for listening aisha i thank you for being here for talking to us for educating us is there anything you want to plug before we go (laughs) no i this has been a lot of fun and oh i guess i would say one thing you know you can start small you think about this if you just start thinking about changing one plate of food over another Mm -hmm. just one plate of food maybe once a week then maybe twice a week then three times a week just changing one plate of food over another can have a significant impact on your own health, the health of the planet, and on animal lives. And there is no other single thing any of us can do 
that would have a greater impact than that. Yeah. T take part in vegan aware if you want. That's a popular thing, I think. It's where you go vegan for all of January. There's a whole website, veganawary.com, I think it is. Try yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's called Veganuary. <laughs> yeah, but maybe. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, listen to her. She definitely knows more about this than I do. Uh, but yeah, so if check that out. I'm not going to be participating because I set a goal in December where I had to ride 300 miles on the bike. So now I'm going to fill myself with as much fatty food as I can. But I'm going to be conscious about it because that's what's important. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. We're, we're out. We're done.